I will never write a single line which I have not first felt in my own heart. He'll teach you everything! Truer words were never spoken. All right. Language and writing were made available. I'm writing this down. This is good stuff. I'm John. This is John Helps You Write Better, and today I'm doing something special. But first, did you know I have a YouTube channel? Chances are you did not know I have a YouTube channel. You can check out long-form video content and uh, all the writer's chats in video form over at youtube.com slash John Adamus. That's youtube.com slash J-O-H-N-A-D-A-M-U-S. This wasn't so much a plug as it is a setup to what I want to talk about today. Over on that channel, I have a series called How Do I Write This? And in that series of long-form lessons explaining different genres and different techniques, one of the things I talked about was romance. Writing a romance, crafting a romance, shaping a romance, developing a romance. And today, in audio form, I'd love to expand on some of those ideas. So consider this How to Write a Romance Part 2. Uh, it is a podcast exclusive. So here we go. First, we're going to define a couple terms, and then we're going to get into this. And I, I want to start by sort of explaining, I guess before we even get to terms, I want to tell you why I'm doing this. About 70% of my business, dealing with individual clients, working on their books, developing ideas, helping them learn and grow and, and doing the marketing and, and getting into writing and getting better at writing, about 70% of all the people I work with are romance writers. They're writing some kind of romance. Maybe it's LGBT plus romance. Maybe it's straight romance. Maybe it's historical fiction romance. Maybe it's, you know, big dramatic romance. Maybe it's erotica, whatever. It's built around this idea of romance. And while my clients are doing their best to produce their best things, I can't get to everybody. Not everybody is a client yet. And I want to, I mean, eventually I would love to do that. I think I think I have something I can give everybody to some way, shape, or form. So I want to make sure that putting I'm putting out material that legitimately helps and doesn't just rehash like the same five points you could find if you quickly Googled how do I write a romance novel. I want to do better than a basic list. And I think that first video on writing a romance really accomplishes that. But there's so much more I could say and so much more I'm about to say and I'm not trying to make romance complicated. In fact, I'm trying to do the opposite because I'm going to throw a ton of terms here and we're going to talk about a lot of different situations and a lot of different setups and stuff. And I know I'm about to suck the the imagination out of things, but I'm not, or at least I don't think I am. What I'm really trying to do is show you all the blueprints so that you know that here are the foundational things. You have to have these things, and generally they have to look a certain way. But beyond that, anything else you want to add, you are entirely free to do so. The point of walking through how to construct something is not to suck the fun out of it. It is to empower greater opportunity and creativity once you learn basic technique because it doesn't matter like how exotic your story it doesn't matter how wild and crazy and complicated your shit is what matters definitely and truly is that you're inspired uh, 
And that doesn't mean like you write by the seat of your pants and you make shit up as you go and you, you only write when the mood strikes. It means that you genuinely have a thing to say and you want to say it in a certain way and it makes a substantial difference when you say it. So you are using the best techniques available to you, practiced and efforted to the best of your ability. So you are using the best stuff, the best you can to make the thing that says the stuff you want to say. And I'm not just talking about like, I want this person to walk into that room and do this thing. I mean, it moves you and stirs you and it expresses something of yourself through your work. This is how you think a romance should be. This is what you think love should feel like. This is how you think sex should be. This is how you think intimacy should be. This is what you think bodies should do or not do or anything like that. That kind of personalization is really only possible when you understand the basics and understand that there is more to romance than just this person goes here, says this thing, kisses the other person, and then they go both do things. We have to get past that basic level. And I think the YouTube video really helps get us there. But we now have to do more with it. So I'm going to cover a little bit of ground from that YouTube video. And then we are off to the races, you know, going much deeper and much bigger. But first, we need terms. We need to get on the same page. All right. So we are going to start with our protagonist. Our protagonist is one of them. There's going to be multiple. We're going to have you know, the possibility of alternating points of view, but we definitely need one protagonist and we are going to call them the central character because it is always to that character. We will come back when we feel lost. They are the axis around which the rest of the story orbits or involves or passes through. This is your major point of view, meaning that it's going to be this point of view more than any others in the story. Even if we're splitting 50-50 between characters, this is the one that goes first. This is the one you want the reader to bond with, connect with, vibe with, and, and root for more than anybody else. This is your primary character. It has a lot of names. It's always this. In a majority of heterosexual romance, this is going to be your female character. It doesn't have to be. You can write a hetero romance with a singular, you know, a lead male. That's totally fine. But really why you don't is because you want to deflect off the accusation of sexism. A lot of things in the romance space, a lot of stuff that's adjacent to the romance construction is more about the perception of romance and the perception of how and why and what. So that sometimes what happens when you're writing a male-centered love story, even if you are actively not being sexist or misogynistic or something like that, there's always going to be an accusation sort of lobbed at you from some corner of the internet because the internet refuses to let people feel joy anymore. So even if you're not being a patriarchal sexist pig, somebody somewhere is going to claim just by you choosing a male center point, you're being a sexist patriarchal pig. It is bullshit. I totally agree with you. But this is a this is a reality we have to contend with. And sensitivity or awareness to the social ramifications of your choices, while it really shouldn't deter you from writing things, it's also not something it, like where you want to manufacture a hill just to die on. So we are going to assume for the sake of examples and the sake of explaining things that you have elected to take a female center central character. Now, once we have our female-centric character, we're going to build that character in a minute and talk about why romance character construction is different or, or done differently than typical uh, character construction, but we'll get there. But once we choose our 
primary character, we need a love interest. Now, this love interest and the gender of this love interest is entirely up to you. Any gender or no gender at all is completely and totally and absolutely valid. You do not have to when you create this other when you create this love interest. You don't have to also include their POV. They can just be a character we only experience through the expression of our main character. That's fine. That's totally okay. You don't need to always have alternating points of view. The reason why you would choose to do alternating point of view is because you can create two distinct characters with two distinct lenses through which they view the world and you have an ability to bring them together to create a synthesized functional third point of view if you don't think you can do that if you are not interested in doing that you are under no obligation to attempt it it is totally absolutely positively completely fine to just stick with your primary point of view but still have a love interest we're just never going to get really inside their head now, some people hear that and they freak the fuck out because they're going to assume that, well, how am I going to know what the love interest is feeling? And this is where we get into something called reactionary development. Reactionary development is the idea that I'm not in this other person's head. I can only gauge what they're thinking and feeling by how I view what how they're expressing it. So let's do a non-romance example to illustrate reactionary development. It's pretty straightforward. You and I are talking and I say something that frustrates you or that you don't like. You, I'm not in your head to hear the thought, I really didn't like what John said there. But I can look at your body language. I can look at the face you're making. I can listen to the words or how you're saying them. And that's going to communicate to me that even though you, I'm not hearing your thought telepathically, I'm getting the idea, the impression, the feeling that, oh, that, that bothered you. That's reactionary development. I'm developing your reaction and using that reaction to inform me as the reader, I'm making air quotes, the reader of this situation, I'm using it to understand the point. Does that make sense? So we don't have to go into the POV of our romance love interest if we're able to develop their reaction and allow the primary character to come to terms and understand the reaction. So if I'm in a I'm in a uh, if I'm the main character and I'm developing a romantic scene with my uh, love interest character, I don't need to be in their head. And I can listen to what they're saying, watch their body language, hear what they're you know, how they're speaking and how they sound and how they're moving and, and their proximity to put together an idea of what it is they're thinking, feeling, and wanting. This creates, though, a little bit of wiggle room. There is an opportunity for me to be imperfect here because I might hear them say a thing, I might see them move a certain way, and I might draw an incorrect conclusion. A lot of writers shy away from this because they think that if your character makes some kind of imperfect conclusion, if they think the wrong thing, if they make a mistake, that somehow your story is ruined. No, just just know that's not how this works. It's never going to be how this works. Uh, your character can make a mistake, should make mistakes, can operate off false assumptions. It's a little difficult to write for some people because they're not used to writing wrongly. Like, and I'm not talking about writing poorly. I mean, like, writing from a position where a character is not working with optimal information. That can be frustrating. 
it can be difficult because you know they're wrong and you're going to uh, maybe try and course correct in your head, but you have to learn the value in letting a character be wrong. I'm not saying it's a given in every romantic situation, but having this tool, knowing that it's possible to do this, can create more emotional tension, romantic tension, sexual tension, can create more intimacy, can create communication issues, can advance a plot, can create an action beat. It gives you a lot of utility for your story. It's okay for your character to be imperfect. In fact, your reader is going to resonate with and vibe with your character as they go through whatever their experience because I don't know if you know this, readers are imperfect too. And if you are showing or mirroring reader experience, the reader almost always connects better with it than you crafting something fantastic and you know outside their, their experience in order for them to connect or relate. It's really nice that you wrote this mega rich guy who's super hot and hunky but a lot of people don't have an experience dealing with the mega rich. They have experiences of, you know, having to pay bills and having to work jobs they don't like. And maybe their romantic partner isn't like hyper mega jacked and super attractive. Maybe they're just people coming in all different body shapes and body types for all different reasons. And you don't always have to go to the fantastic, to the super outside the norm, the the point zero one of the one percent. You know, like all people want super hunky, attractive, mega muscles, whatever. You don't have to always go there in order to shape your character. And in fact, you're thinking that it has to be that way really shows a, a lack of depth of thinking on your part. It's revealing a very limited understanding of what connects people and what allows romance to have its fantasy elements because romance shares a lot of genealogy with fantasy stories. Now, I don't mean like elves and dwarves and kings and shit. I mean fantasy in the sense that we, the reader, project something of our lives into the story or take something from the story into our lives. It's escapist. Whether it's escapist because the sex scenes arouse us or whether it's escapist because the situation the characters are in seems exotic and something that a character would want to experience for them or a reader would want to experience for themselves. That's fine. That's okay. We want that level of escapism. We want that notion of how things are using that and being able to lean on that in addition to being able to craft imperfect situations gives us more utility. If you've started to notice the pattern, one of the greatest assets you can get for developing romance as both a narrative, as a story element, as a book type, is being able to develop from a position of having a lot of unity. Uh, sorry, having a lot of utility. You could do this. You could do that. We could go over here. We could go over there. We have a lot of options. Now, that said, we don't have to follow every single option. We don't have to give in to every single like, oh, I've, I've made this idea, so it has to be in the book. I have this idea, so it has to be in the book. No, certainly not. What you want to do instead is remember that writing is the act of making decisions and your ability to narrow the scope of things and focus on it. Yes, it might ultimately lead to a shorter story than if you threw everything in their mother in the kitchen sink together into the book. But it's not going to be like so short that it's two sentences and then the end we're done. It just means we're not going to ramble off into all these little tangents. That's fine. That's okay. 
And I realize I've rambled into a tangent because we were talking about love interest and love interest point of view. But in order to cover this, we had to go here and now we're going to come back. It's around this time that people tend to think about whether or not they're going to have a single point of view and stick with it or they're going to alternate their points of view. I said a lot about this in the romance video, but I want to cover a few more things that I think I really didn't do a great job explaining. If you choose alternating, you are going to be alternating fairly regularly through the story. If you save your altering until like alternate. If you save your altering, that's not the right way to say it. I want to talk about that alternating flipping and flopping A to B point of view construction. If you decide to go A to B, you better do it early and you better do it often. If you go beyond really the 50% mark of the story before you bring in B, whatever your other point of view is, your book is going to flop. Now, and I don't mean that from a sales perspective. I mean that from a narrative perspective. Waiting too long to alternate. And I don't mean like we're going to do 50% A and then 50% B. We're going to talk about that in a second. That's a totally different thing. I mean like we're doing a lot of A and then B and then A and then B and then A and then B and then A in the back half. If you delay your, your switching back and forth, your A to B, if you delay that A-B swap too long, no matter what you do, no matter how many times you alternate once you get started, it's always going to feel insufficient. Your story is always going to feel lopsided. The reader's going to hate it. And I got to tell you from an editorial perspective, it's generally a sign that you've not thought through your plot. Now, of course, are there exceptions? Sure, absolutely. But they are rare. They are four-leaf clover in a field. They are needles in haystacks. That doesn't mean you're not good enough to do it. I'm saying this isn't something you need to really try and do to get right because once you start alternating, once you start going back and forth, the point is the story is supposed to develop. And if you're waiting so goddamn long to bring something up, how much development from it can you really get? Because the reader's going to start questioning, well, why did it take so long to bring in this other person? And then we're flipping and flopping back and forth. And I understand that there are exceptions. And the big one being we're going to do 50% A and then 50% B. Here's the problem with that. Generally, people, when they build a three-act structure story, the climax of the story and the resolution of the story take place in that second half. So if you use A to develop a number of things and really lay all the groundwork and we really feel for this character, let's say we use the... the uh, we're doing a hetero romance in our example. So we have a female character and the love interest is B. If we spend the first half of the book really developing A, really, really, absolutely getting into A, and we care about her and we root for her, and then all of a sudden you hit the emergency brake and bootleg turn the car, and all of a sudden we're spinning out because we're talking about B, somehow, for whatever reason, the character we care most about is now being ignored when it comes to the climax of the story. That is not something you really want to mess with. That opens the door for making your first character, the one we spent all this time caring about, seem less important. And the minute that happens, your story is sunk because you're not going to be able to get that momentum back. I'm not saying three-act structure is wrong. I'm saying dropping one character at the 50% mark and picking up somebody else and then not really developing anything, not really getting anything out of it, is a wrong narrative choice. Don't make it. 
Somewhere along the way in this discussion, right around the time I'm talking about alternating points of view, right before I start developing characters and scenes, somebody starts mentioning, hey, what happens if you have a book series and it follows the same characters, the narrating character and the love interest, and it follows them over a long stretch of time in multiple books? Great. You treat each book individually, and you treat each book as though a reader somebody brand new has come to the series and they're not going to immediately like read two pages of book six or seven and then suddenly go, okay, I'm three pages in. I better go back and start with book one. They're not going to do that. Do not count on them to do that. They might do it, but we are not forcing them to do it and we are not assuming they're going to do it. We are instead saying they have this book in front of them. This book, whatever it is, has to contain enough material to inform them They're not going to be as well informed as somebody who went back and read all the books prior, but they got to be at least somewhat informed so that they, from this point, continue going forward, which means some portion of this book should fill the reader the fuck in with what's happening and what's gone on so that they're as caught up as everybody else. Do not, do not, do not make the rudimentary assumption that everybody's been here since day one and that you have no obligation or responsibility to cover any ground you've already covered, repeat yourself or anything like that, because that is a that is a fundam- that is a huge substantial error, a fundamental base level error when it comes to readers engaging with a series. You are not special enough to have everybody always on every single word you write. No one is. Not the famous authors you refer to by last name. Not that famous author you're thinking of right now. Nobody's that special. Get over it. What you need to instead do and focus on is to say, here is this book. This book covers these topics from here to here with these characters. Let's go make this the best I can. And one of the first ways we set that up, one of the first ways we make this work is by building our character. So we're going to start with our narrating character and then move to our love interest. And then we'll talk about everybody else because there are going to be somebody else's, but we're not there yet. First, main character. We are going to use something called conflict-oriented creation, which is the idea that your character has a problem. And that problem can be crafted as a question or that problem can be crafted as a single statement. Whatever it is, it's generally going to be an emotional or mental problem. I don't mean like mental health issues. I mean like a thing they think and feel that reveals some kind of problem or error or deficiency or lack in their lives. They're lonely. They don't believe in love anymore. They're wondering about who they are as a person. They're wondering what their purpose is. They're wondering how they're going to survive this terrible loss they've just suffered. They've got something internal to them that is bugging them and making their current status quo, the way things are for them right now, making it untenable so that they have to go out and do something and try and change it. This emotional conflict is going to drive the story far more than whatever situational plot you create for them. Why? Because situational plots are by nature not necessarily always emotionally investing. Sometimes it's just, well, this is just the shit that happens while I feel these feelings. 
And in romance, that happens quite a bit where the plots are almost always very like detached from the emotion. And it's sort of like, oh, by the way, while I'm feeling these feelings and having this issue, you know, I need to raise money for the school before the, you know, before the evil developer gets it. That plot is a plot, but it's not really like the central thing we've come to the romance novel for. Nobody comes to the romance novel for like the whatever kind of global plot there is that's. That's not the point of romance is to feel things. And it's really hard to make the bake sale where you have to save the school uh, a bigger deal than how a character thinks and feels. That's a really important point because a lot of writers who start writing romance end up not writing romance and end up writing just dramatic fiction, which is totally fine. But in the course of writing dramatic fiction, you can't keep saying you're a romance writer. If, if you write a story and, you know, you say it's romance and then you don't really do romance, it's not a romance. That's like saying I'm writing a murder mystery and there's no dead body. You need those things. We need to front and center. We need to spotlight the romantic potential of the story. So our character's conflict has to be one that can be resolved by or come into tension with or come into, you know, conflict with romance. Our character's emotional question, the issue of them, must be solved via or because or through some kind of romantic element or romantic opportunity or romantic situation because this is a romance novel your romance should not be secondary in your romance novel every fucking thing else can be secondary or tertiary or quaternary that's delightful but if you're not putting the romance front and center why the hell is your reader reading your story it's a romance novel. Let's have some romance, please. So we take our character and we figure out their emotional thing, their issue, and then we double check the validity of that issue, whether we've made a good constructive choice by wondering, okay, so our character feels lonely, doesn't believe in love anymore, doesn't think there's any good people left in the world because of this terrible thing that just happened to them. Can I take this problem and resolve it positively for our character's benefit if we're writing something positive. Can I resolve it by putting some kind of romance through it? If I feed romance into this equation, do I end up with a solution I like? That's what we're aiming for. So yes, sometimes a character who doesn't believe in love again has to fall in love to learn how to love. That's totally legit. Sometimes a character who is wondering who they are as a person, whether or not they can respect themselves, whether or not they can have confidence and purpose, finds they have confidence and purpose by finding a person or finding a situation where they can love themselves and someone else. Take romantic possibility, utility, and lens it through the question. If the two things go together really well, then you've built a base for a strong character to grow. That character arc, that attempt to resolve their emotional question, is going to be the big load-bearing thing in your story. Not the big giant plot about the school and the bake sale. Not the random other shit that happens to secondary characters. Not the strange conflicts you throw into the back of the book because you realize, oh shit, I need a climax. The load-bearing structure is your characters interfacing with romantic potential. That's it. That's the whole point of a romance novel. 
if you put your load-bearing, story-bearing, big-deal effort not on that, like let's say you give them a crazy-ass plot to deal with and the romance is just kind of, yeah, it's there, and you've shifted like all the focus, the majority of the book is premised on like that bake sale and saving the school, you're writing a drama. There's nothing wrong with writing a drama. Drama is great. Drama is arguably going to be covered in a different podcast because a lot of this stuff's no longer going to apply to drama because I'm going to go talk about love interests and intimacy development in a hot second. But you're writing a drama, and that's fine. So stop calling it a romance. Call it a drama, and let's go on with our day. We are lensing through romance because the point of a romance experience is to feel romantic feelings that doesn't necessarily mean like everyone gets sexually aroused or everyone gets to read words that make them giggle it just means they get to feel feelings and we want to feel feelings here so let's make sure the feelings are the big currency we're spending and we are going to spend those feelings in a couple different places but never more than between main character our our point of view character and their love interest and when we're all if we're alternating then one character becomes the main character and the other is the love interest or it's always the main character and everybody else but your biggest expenses of that feelings currency is going to be the interaction between your main character and their love interest this does not mean that you have to put these two people on a scene and you have to have them interact because you can expend this currency. You can put it down on the ledger by just having one character think or feel about that character because maybe you've broken up your couple. Maybe it's a point in the book where our characters had a falling out and our characters aren't interacting directly with one another, but they're still able to think and feel about the other person. And it's in that space that you can still spend this currency and have feelings felt so that the reader can connect to it. If we are feeling feelings, then we are doing a good job. Whether we are feeling feelings as a reader or giving the reader feelings to feel in the first place, that's our big thing. We want that. Everything else takes a back seat. That doesn't mean we spend the bare minimum number of words on it. It just means that it's less important. But this also means we get to talk about plot a little bit before we continue building characters. Because if our big spends are feeling-based and our big, our big driver for our main character is their emotional conflict or tension, then we don't necessarily want to start bringing in plots that have to be dealt with by completely unplugging emotionally from them. We don't, if we have this example of we got to have a bake sale to save the school, we don't necessarily want to make that plot more complicated or make it more urgent and have it take away from the emotions of our romantic interests. We need it to have some kind of feelings too. If you don't, if you don't get there and the plot becomes this one thing that's happening in the story and then, oh, by the way, there's also some love interest stuff, you have failed this manuscript. You have misunderstood the assignment, as the kids say. You done fucked up because you've got it backwards. What should be is we've got this big emotional undercurrent that's holding our story together. And then, oh, by the way, there's also this plot. It's okay that the plot is this semi-separate sort of detached thing, like an orbit that doesn't entirely parallel some other orbit. It's okay. It's it at an extreme level, this is the plot in a porn that's there to facilitate the the 
the filming of the porn, but it's not actually important. Nobody cares about the pizza delivery guy or the plumber or the secretary who's in the wrong office or, you know, your girlfriend's best friend coming. Like nobody cares about the, the, the way this got set up. It's nice. It has to happen. But we don't spend a great deal of time because it's it's not the thing we're there for. We're, it's there enough to facilitate the thing we're there for. And then it kind of goes out of the way. That's okay. It's really fine. Where we go next from here is building that love interest. So we want to do much the same thing with a love interest that we did with the main character, except we're not going to do it to the same degree unless we are alternating points of view. Because if we never get the point of view of the love interest, if they just sort of exist and we have to do that reactionary development in order to understand them, we don't need to go as deeply with them. We don't need to give them a tragic, troubled backstory just because they have stubble and abs. We don't need to give her a terrible event in her life in order to justify why she has the feelings. That's a little too soap opera and a little too like daytime talk show. What we want to look at instead is just what is their emotional issue? What is their conflict? And how is the romance of our other character making it possible to change the character's status quo? It's the exact same question. We're just not going to focus on it so much because the more we focus on it, the more we are pulling away from our main character. The exception here being if we're going to jump into their point of view, then all of a sudden they become the main character and they get equal treatment as the other main character did. One thing to note here at this level is that each character has to somewhat solve the problem, not solve it and take it off, not resolve it. But the solution to the character's problem comes in part in the form of the other character. So if we have main character A, whose central emotional conflict is they don't believe in love anymore, then character B is the reason why they are going to believe in love again. And likewise, the opposite is true, not the opposite, the obverse is true for B. If B is a character who's, you know, not ready to commit, then it is because of A that they are willing to commit. You keep that front and center through the majority of scenes, and we'll get to something called position and placement in a second. But we keep that front and center and we go back to it often, not because we want to belabor the point, but because we have a lot of things to say about it. You're not just saying one thing and then repeating it 10 times. Like, I only have this understanding of love. I only have this understanding of romance. So I'm just always going to do this, whether that's a sex scene, whether that's a kiss, whether that's the, the meaning behind a handhold or the meaning behind an I love you spoken late at night or whatever. There's, there's these conditions, there's these ideas that's more than just I do the same thing over and over and it has extra meaning. One thing has one meaning. It's pretty straightforward. This means this and it leads to that. It's very linear because it's a romance story. So it requires you to have extra depth. It requires you to know more than one thing and not beat the dead horse and repeat stuff over and over and over and over again. We want variety because variety shows you, the author, have really thought about romance, really come to understand the human condition, and you are going out of your way to make an explanation to the reader that evokes emotion in them. It's not just, well, I need our characters to kiss, so every time they kiss, eh, not the same thing. We want variety. 
variety in action, variety in feeling, variety in intensity, variety in thought, variety of situations where these things pop up, you know? We don't always and only want our feelings to show up when we're in one room because that means we're always going to have to have a scene in that room to get whatever done. It's it's functional in some cases, like we always have sex scenes in certain bedrooms, let's say, because our characters are not exhibitionists, so they're not outside like having sex on the hood of the car. But at the same time, we don't only and always want to make sure we have emotion scenes in one room because emotions don't only live in one space. Emotions are carried with us and we want to express that to the reader. Because it is emotions and feeling that is doing the driving of our story, you as an author have a responsibility and an obligation, and I would argue a requirement, to be able to put those feelings into words. Which means you need to get in the character's head. You can't just tell the reader, this is how the character feels. They feel sad. They feel happy. Like, that's nice, but that's probably the most boring, unengaging way to solve this issue of how do I make this character, how do I make the reader feel something based on what the character is going through? We want it to be better than that. And for a lot of writers, that's tough. Well, yes, because writing's hard. Like, I I don't have a better answer for you. It's hard. That's why this is an art. That's why we practice our art. That's why we refine our techniques. That's why we draw inspiration and we make the best effort possible. Some people suck at this. The solution to sucking at it is try more, do more. Don't just repeat the same thing over and over and keep telling the reader, oh, they're happy, oh, they're happy, oh, they're happy, because I'm not going to buy it. If you keep, you have to, if it's, do you know what the cool problem is? The cool problem is the idea that if I have to keep telling you something is cool, it's not cool. Cool people don't have to stop and tell you they're cool. That's the cool problem. The same thing is true for romance. Oh, this character feels a certain way. This character feels a certain way. If you just tell me and you don't describe it or develop it or add to it or explain why or show how, like you're assuming that I understand the nuance of the words you mean. So here's what that breaks down to. If you tell me a character is happy, doesn't matter who the fuck character is, but if you tell me the character is happy and then you move on, We don't say anything else. We don't have a context clue for why they're happy. We don't have an idea of what happiness looks like expressed through their actions or faces or movements or whatever. Like if you're just saying they're happy, period, you are assuming that your definition of happy and your understanding of happy is my own and I will somehow do the heavy lifting for you of painting the whole picture of taking on the extra burden of doing the describing myself because you're, what, intellectually lazy, fundamentally uncurious, um, poorly writing? Like, I don't know why you think you can just take the shortcut and say, oh, they're happy, and then leave it off. Like, the whole point of, of a romance novel is to evoke emotion, not dictate emotion, but evoke it, make me feel that they're happy. I want to draw that. I want to earn that conclusion by doing the work of processing and understanding the story you're telling me. If you just jump to the part where you tell me, you are giving me the punchline to jokes you're not setting up. You are giving me the end result without any of the effort. It's lazy. It's cheap. You are shortcutting the reader and shortchanging them. And that's 
That is the path to bad writing. I don't know how else to stress this to you. It's a bad habit. Forget the idea of like show versus tell. Fine, whatever. You can dress it up in whatever sort of like buzzword bullshit you want. It's just bad writing. And we all deserve better. You deserve to do better writing. The reader deserves to read better writing. Art deserves better treatment. You need to respect that more. You need to respect yourself more. And you need to make an effort. And if it's hard, you need to learn. And if it's hard, you need to try and keep trying and get better and figure it out. And in the course of figuring it out, you also need to stop and think about where in the story certain things happen. Because while our primary driver is the emotionality and romantic relationship of our romance novel, we still have an obligation to carry on the other stuff of story, which means we still have a three-act structure. And we're still going to have a plot. Well, at this point, the world plot, the big thing that isn't the romance, which would be an A plot in any other story, is actually our B plot. The problem is a lot of writers spend way too much time developing it because it's, it's happening in the real world. It's a big deal. The school is going to be attacked by developers. There's ninjas and bears and giant robots and who the fuck knows what. That's nice, and it's okay that this is happening, and it can be a big deal but it can never be the bigger deal than the romance stuff. Which means when we sit down and plot out our story, we have to plot out several things somewhat simultaneously. The first thing you want to plot out, the first thing you want to track from beginning to end over the course of the story is figuring out the emotional arc and th what's called the emotional thrust. Yeah, that's a pun. I know, but the emotional thrust of the story. So here's our romantic relationship between main character and love interest. It starts here at this point. There's our meet cute. There's our development. There's our, our expression of feelings. There's all those things we talk about in that, that video on romance, all those signposts and signifiers of a developing romantic relationship. Now, if you're writing a story where the relationship is already in place, then we are looking to sustain it or increase it or deepen it, however you want to phrase that. But we are not going to have another meet cute because we already have a meet cute. We already have them established. Now we need to develop, test, challenge, and do sort of the back half of that development because we already did the front half. We don't need to re-meet. We just need to deepen. And you need to map this out over the course of the story. You need to sit down and go, okay, in this part of the book, not so much the specific scenes, like while this scene is happening, we're having this. Just think about it in the abstract. The first couple chapters, we're going to establish the relationship. And then we're going to hit a crisis point where something is going to create an idea that we need to change the status quo. And then we're going to change the status quo. And here's how we're going to change the status quo. And the ramifications of that, we're going to explore in the next couple chapters. And then it's going to continue that way and maybe deepen, maybe worsen, maybe get bigger, maybe get tougher, maybe get harder. We are not thinking about specific concrete things yet. We are just looking at the idea of how this is going to progress over time. Time. We will think about specifics in a second. But ultimately, we are going to develop this relationship and add conflict until we get to a climax. The climax of this relationship, or at least is going to be more or less a climax of the emotional questions faced by the two characters. So remember our characters who don't believe in love anymore and who aren't ready to commit? Those obstacles, those questions create a scene 
where they have to deal with them, where they have to change their challenge, their status quo because of those questions. Maybe it's an argument. Maybe it's a fight. Maybe it happens during a certain scene. Whatever it is, we have to get to a point where our characters must undergo challenge and change to their emotional questions. And then they have to deal with the consequences of it and resolve it in some way. That happens in the story. Where does it happen in the story? We are not trying to nail down and go, it always has to happen in chapter 20. It always has to happen in chapter 6. We don't give a shit about that. That's not important. The important thing is that we're setting up this idea that over the course of the story, in addition to all those little signifiers that indicate the creation or deepening of a relationship, here's where we're adding the tension. We're going to have a scene where this happens. We're going to have a scene where this happens. What the specifics of it are, I leave to you. There's no right way to do it. Well, that's not entirely true. There's sort of a right way to do it in the sense that you have to have them challenge this question. You have to have them deal with it. You have to have them present it and have to work through it. You can have this climax, this development happen separate from the other plot stuff. So in our plot where we are saving the school via a bake sale, it can be very ridiculous to assume that in the course of the bake sale, the character who is uh, ready to believe in love again finds the way to love just by baking brownies. Like, those two things don't easily connect. And I think a lot of writers try too hard to be a little too cute and figure out a way to make all their shit connect. It doesn't need to. If your character has to learn how to love their husband after some infidelity and your kid is trying to win the spelling bee along the way, it can be difficult to have, you know, the spelling bee scene also be the scene where our character recommits to their husband or learns to trust again. Because spelling, you know, infantilization is not necessarily the best way for character A to fall in love again with character B. You don't have to make everything nice and neat. You can have multiple separate climaxes so long as they happen relatively near each other. In fact, it is often a good idea to have your emotional centerpiece, your emotional climax, and your emotional tension come before the other plot conclusion. Why? Because the motivation gained from dealing with our feelings, oh my God, I really do truly love you, gives us a sense of drive and push to carry forward and go, okay, now they're on the same page. Now they're a unified team. They've said they love each other. On they go. Let's go face down this other challenge together. And they show up to the spelling bee as a big united front. Or they show up to the bake sale and buy all the cookies. Or they just save the day. That's called an earned joint win. The idea that the success of one thing gives us a reason, a purpose, and an opportunity to also succeed at the second thing. You don't always only have to do that, but it's a really common strategy and a really workable one if what that's what you're aiming for. The majority of stories are going to contain a happily ever after. It doesn't always need to be like, oh my God, there's rainbows and birds chirping. It just, it just needs to be positive. It doesn't need to be positive forever. It just needs to be positive for right now. The misleading part of a happily ever after is the ever after. That's some Disney commodity bullshit. We instead just want happy ending. If we were going to go for a sad ending, like we break the characters up, then the emotional conflict is the is resolved through the realization that this couple should not be together. 
And if that's the case, when we go to take this this win, even though it's a negative, it's still a win because we've changed the status quo, the win catapults us forward towards the other plot. Okay, our characters are broken up. They are now free to go in their separate directions. This freedom allows them to put baggage down and move forward, allowing them to focus on the other plot. You can still get a joint win set up. You can still win by having characters lose. That paradox is, for some writers, very difficult to grapple with, but it comes from understanding what your story is and what you are aiming to say more than it is trying to describe the specific actions or events that the story is going through. It doesn't matter if we're baking cookies for the bake sale. We could be washing cars. We could be selling street pavers. We could be, you know, shooting clowns with a sniper rifle. It doesn't matter. That's not the important thing. The important thing is using our resolution and our climax model for our emotional questions before we get to anything else. That's the big thing, eating up all the oxygen in the room, and then everything else fights for scraps. Period. Period. Positioning is the idea that a certain scene, because of what it is, not where it is, but what it is, like, oh, this is the climax. This is the build-up to the climax. This is the resolution. This is the moment of tension. Because of the nature of the scene, more than the specifics of the scene, we have to have it in a certain location. We cannot have the climax set up and resolved before we've introduced the problem. It's not going to make the most sense. And I'm not talking about a flashback here. I'm talking about getting the story elements in a functional order. When you have things out of position, when you've got all your, you know, instead of A, B, C, D, you have A, C, B, D, or D, B, A, C, or what the fuck ever. When your stuff is out of order, it's going to make those individual elements, the actual substance of story, feel less important because the reader's not going to be able to build that context and feel those feelings. When you mess this up, it falls apart. Are you seeing a pattern yet when you really pull the foundational blocks like a Jenga tower, the whole thing topples? That's what we're aiming for here. We don't want our Jenga tower to collapse. We want to fortify our Jenga tower by developing organized story structure. Now, in talking about organized story structure, we can't really neglect all the secondary and other characters, right? Like, our characters generally don't exist in a vacuum. Our love, and our love story and main character are not the only beings happening. So let's talk about those secondary characters. Now, remember how we talked about the plot being somewhat secondary? It's a global plot. Like, it's the big deal. We're saving the school. All the people who are most involved with that and less involved in the romance because they're neither the main character nor the love interest, all those other people are secondary characters. The best friend gal pal, the school principal, the you know the non-love interest, the, the ex, the kids... The, the neighbor, the friends, the other people in the circle, whomever, all those other characters at best are secondary characters, which means they don't need an emotional question. What they need is a narrative question because what a secondary character is trying to do is answer the question, what are we doing in this story? Why are we talking about Susie, the next door neighbor? Why are we talking about... Kevin the jerk principal. Why? 
other than just to say, oh, well, they're the jerk principal. Okay, why are we, why are we, like, what are they here in the story to do? Secondary characters, which get some attention and some development, but not as much as the main character. And tertiary characters, who were really only there to serve a singular function in a scene or two. Secondary and tertiary characters get asked, what? As in, what are you doing? What's going on? Whereas primary characters, main character and love interest, get what and why and how. They get deeper questions. If you end up asking deeper questions of your secondary characters, the more you do that, the more you are pulling away from the romance and we are weakening our Jenga tower. We're making our stories slow down disproportionately and not in an effective way. And we are going to set up a context where these other characters and their bullshit, whatever it might be, suddenly become more important than the romance, which, as we talked about 40-something minutes ago, nothing's more important than the romance in a romance novel, period. Which means all the secondary characters and all their little quirks and all their little picadillos and all their little moments and all their little thises and all their little thats, they matter, but never as much as the other stuff. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. I don't care how attached you are. I don't care how much you love them. Ever, 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 they're going to be secondary characters. If you want to make them primary characters, tell a different story. We don't care. That doesn't mean they can't go through things. It doesn't mean like, you know, our next door neighbor can't have like a crisis of faith because she at one moment was on Kevin's side and now she's not. Like she can still go through shit. That's fine, but we don't have to detail it the same way we would detail a main character, nor do we have to have the main character constantly brood or worry or sweat the shit the secondary character is going through. Why? Because the main character is not in the story to care about Susie beyond whatever functional utility Susie has. Susie is expendable. We could kill Susie off in this story and our story would be just fine. We don't necessarily need to leave a Susie-shaped hole because, oh my God, Susie is everything. She's not our main character. She's not there for the love story. She's there to just do a plot that is also happening somewhat concurrently. Secondary characters hang out in that space, period. Over-detailing them, constantly bringing them into scenes, constantly talking about, well, they also have this worry and they also have that worry. No one's going to give a shit. I don't know how else to tell you this. They're not that big a deal. Stop trying to make them that big a deal. If they want to be a big deal, let them go be the main character in another story. And this is why we also have to talk about how to plot the secondary plot where all the other characters are doing shit. Now, just like we did for the first plot, we're not really nailing down concrete stuff the scene starts here and it goes here we go into the car then we're out of the car then we're in the school then we're in the gym then we're here no no you don't have to do that that comes later for now we just want to map across the progression of three acts we introduce we set the conflict we develop the conflict we climax we resolve in the resolution we get to here in the climax we get to there the second act looks like this it ramps up this way because of these things and we don't want to totally detach from the emotion, so we don't want to like make it feel like a whole novel by itself. We want to be careful and look at our emotional arc to use that as a template for our main plot. So remember when we talked about joint wins? We want to set it up so that our emotional climax is somewhere in the ballpark, somewhere in the range of our other story climax. 
because it makes sense to put those two things together because we're already got the reader carrying all that emotional baggage ready and primed to move forward and resolve it. We want our resolutions to happen at more or less the same time so the story feels complete. We want our development to start, not necessarily at the same pace, but we want it to start at roughly the same time so it doesn't feel like one is kind of either dragging ass behind it or the other one is racing ahead. This means you need to think about how to weave one into the other. That doesn't mean we have to have that moment of like terrible catharsis about, you know, characters in fidelity or a character not ready to commit while we are icing and frosting the cupcakes because those two things are ridiculous together. But we do need to sort of consider the position of one and how it's going to inform the existence and position of the other. And remember, it's a secondary plot. It doesn't need to be that complex because you know where the complexity is in a romance novel? In the romance plot. That's it. That's it. That's that's the trick to developing a plot. It's secondary. If this wasn't a romance novel and it was just other shit to do, how would you plot it? It's a subplot. It's a subplot. You're writing a subplot and you've got extra characters doing the subplot. Period. I know like that's not a very big ta-da, but it's a big deal. Because understanding that and then understanding that in, in addition to developing the emotion... Our big thing, and we talked about this on the podcast the other day, is developing tension. And that's what's going to drive your story. Because at the end of the day, no one came to your romance novel for the school or the cupcakes. They came because they want to see these two characters go through something and change their status quo and reach a point of resolution by answering their questions. The questions are at times going to slightly be paused because I can't deal with the emotion right now. I have to go bake these cupcakes. But at the same time, like, we're not totally forgetting it. But that also doesn't mean we need to constantly, you know, remind the reader, hey, don't forget the, don't forget the existential question. Don't forget the emotion. Don't forget the emotion. We didn't. We're not children. We're not goldfish. We're not, you know, squirrels or anything. We have, like, developed brains. We can hold multiple things in our head. So I understand that we're not in a scene dealing with how the one character feels a certain way. We're just making some cupcakes. So we make some cupcakes and then we go back to that, you know, like we hang up the phone on our love interest because they said a jerk thing. You slam the phone down and what do you do? <sighs> Big exhale, go focus on those cupcakes. You might fume about what the, the love interest said on the phone, but by and large, we are accomplishing a different task. And then later, after the scene, after the cupcakes, we can pick the phone back up and re-engage with the love interest. I'm not saying drop one, clear the table, pick something up, clear the table when it's done. I'm saying just put it down, maybe engage with it a little bit, but then keep moving forward. Too many stories, too many romance stories die because of a stop-start effect. We just start talking about a thing, we just start getting into a thing, and then slam on the brakes. And then talk about a thing and talk about a different thing and then slam on the brakes. And we never really seem to be making consistent, smooth, forward progress because we're always jumping from one thing to the next or one point of view to the next. We solve that by mapping everything out and then filling in the specifics as we go. If you attack the specifics first to the exclusion of giving yourself the utility or flexibility you need, you end up with a messy manuscript that more than likely you are going to figure out your story in the edit rather than in the creative process, which is not the end of the world. It's often how I have a job with clients, but at the same time, it doesn't actually make your writing necessarily 
better. It gives you a different set of tools that are useful. But if you are actively looking to become a better writer, then focus on the writing and leave the editing until after the writing is done. But that is a discussion for a different day and a different time. I think the big takeaway here, if you're looking to wrap this thing up and summarize it, are the following things. One, nothing in a romance novel is more important than the romance. Nothing in the romance structure is more important than the characters needing to try and resolve their emotional questions or challenges. Nothing is more important than the idea that the love interest and the main character are in some degree, to some way, shape, or form, part of the answer to each other's questions. A answers B's question, B answers A's question. Or if it doesn't answer it entirely, it answers it a lot, substantially, so that the other character can do the growing or the changing to answer the rest of it. Think like 70, 30, 80, 20 if not 90, 10, or 100, 0. Like, the majority of the answer is found in the other character, and that's how we develop the romance out of it. It's not just, oh my God, I'm going to tell the reader that they like each other, and then they're going to smooch. Like, that's a thing, but we're going to make those things matter, and we're not just going to say they do them and then call it a day. That's lazy. We're not in the lazy business. We're not in the fucking around business. We're in the getting the reader to... Do more than detail the rain, but instead feel wet. That's that's a nice metaphor to describe what your obligation is as a writer. Our plot, the world plot, the non-romance plot, secondary. All the characters who engage with it, secondary. They don't need as much attention as the primaries. Why? It's a romance novel. We're here for the romance. We're here to feel feelings. If you go down some path where you are not really providing feelings because you are busy creating a world and doing something, good news, you're still writing. You're just making a drama, not a romance, which is fine, but that's a different discussion. That's a different day. There's different. There's other things we need to do. And when we map these plots out, we don't want to anchor in specifics. Unless you have like really clear pictures in your head, you don't want to necessarily hold yourself to them and only them. You want to develop a rough map where the progression of one track of story, one idea, this emotionality arc, the romance arc, mirrors to some degree the same kind of development as our other plot passages. So our climax more more or less align our resolutions more or less align that's what we're aiming for that's what we're trying for writing romance even if it's cozy which is just meaning the stakes are really low and there's not a lot of challenge and the story is generally briefer or writing something historical or writing something modern day or writing something hetero or writing something queer All those things are still true. You can still do all those things. And it can be important to infuse the story with those elements to some degree. Of course, there's, you know, like too far. Turning it into an academic resource is obviously too far. Or turning it into a soapbox upon which you espouse the many points you want to make is also too far. But first and foremost, this is a story about feeling feelings and having your reader feel feelings because of what your characters are experiencing. That's that's critical. And we make them feel or we encourage them to feel because you can't always make somebody feel a feeling. You encourage them to do so by how well you understand the experience that you were trying to put across to them. Not just dictate things, not just describe the hell out of the pillowcases. But again, instead of saying it's raining, make them feel 
wet. Practice this. Think about this. Work on this a lot. Come to chats and ask more questions. If you're a Patreon patron, which is patreon.com slash John helps you write better, jump on the Discord and spend all damn day asking questions. I'd be happy to answer them. Write me an email. Write me anything. Find me online. Come ask questions. I want you to get better at this. And if you want individual help, you want to really get intensely good at this in a fairly short period of time, Go over to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.com, book a free appointment, and I would be more than super happy to help you get better at this. Give that some thought. Give this all some thought, and I will talk to you tomorrow.